Hello, friends. Good afternoon, good evening, or good night. We're depending on where you are in the world. We're all over the world, so you know whoever's watching. Hope everyone's doing well. Welcome to another episode of Page Chewing, and this week we'll be talking to our friend Critical Dragon, AP Canavan. AP, thank you for joining us. Steve, thank you very much for having me on again, even after last time when when I rambled on and on and on. So thank you very much, Steve. Thank you, PL. Thank you, Taylor. It is really really nice to be well you 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 always apologize for rambling but we love it like we soak it up it's what we want so that's why we keep bugging you to come back we're hoping you'd never say no so we're we try to leave you alone for a while and kind of forget about us a little bit and then we come back and say hey remember us like we're ready for another lesson yeah But, uh, but you know, you've, you've, uh, you've taught us all so much during your time on BookTube and we watch your videos and we learn about literature and adaptations and that we, it's like going to class. So we are wondering what you've learned, what you've learned during your time on BookTube. Well, well, firstly, I'm sorry. It feels like school. Um, no, it's... in a good way, in a good way. <laughs> it's like my, the my... favorite class, you know, everyone's yeah. favorite class is what he's trying to favorite say. Favorite prop, <laughs> the prop, you, the one class you look forward to during the the whole week yeah my my aim with all of this was always to to talk about to books and films and, and tv shows and, and story in general from the perspective that i have because we all when we discuss things we take what we know our experiences and we're trying to share them with others and so all i was all i've ever tried to do is share my perspective and the things that i know and the thing is, it's um, one of the most difficult things for me to learn. And I am still learning. Well, there's a whole load of, of the technical aspects of actually filming and editing videos and, and all of that that I still struggle with because like, it's a hobby. It's not something I want to dedicate more time to uh, as a sort of, oh, I need to make it look really, really professional. You know, no, I'm not a professional. I'm, I'm doing this for fun. But I think one of the things that I've really struggled with is um, how to pitch the level of what I am discussing. Because initially when uh, I did a, a lot of my earlier videos, I quite frequently was using terms like the diegesis and I was talking about um, various diegetic levels and was using slightly more technical language because that was how I naturally spoke about a lot of narrative because of my training and then was having to explain it quite frequently. And so what, um, particularly my conversations with Philip Chase, my, my nemesis, one of the things that that has been really, really helpful uh, for me is Philip helped me mitigate the technical language and to try and make it more conversational and informal. And I still struggle with that. I still sometimes in my head, I'm trying to translate what I'm talking about into more informal everyday language. And that sometimes I don't get the balance right, that I, I've gone too informal. And so then when I'm getting commentary and, and feedback, I'm going, no, but what I meant was this thing and this thing very, very specifically. And it comes from this definition and it's part of this. Um, but then if I rewatch the video, I went, oh, yeah, but I didn't. I didn't explain all of that terminology. I didn't explain that very specific thing. Or I thought this was something that everyone understood. And it turns out, no, that's part of the, the sort of the pr 
privilege of my education that I, I know that because someone taught it to me, this isn't general knowledge. And I struggle with remembering sometimes what is general knowledge that you can assume that everyone knows and what is specialist knowledge that you gain from whatever source, but you need to acquire it. Um, so that, that's that been something that's been very, very difficult. I hope I am getting better. But um, that that is something I've really struggled with at times. Uh, but the the best thing about all of this is the different points of view from all over the world, from all walks of life, uh, completely different cultures and, and different people coming together to discuss literature and to discuss quite often on my channel fantasy things that we all love we all appreciate we've all come to in different ways and introducing a lot of the younger readers or people newer to fantasy to some of the older fantasy works to introducing some newer fantasy work to people who maybe you know oh i only read that classical stuff but now i'm not interested in that getting those conversations going and having people interact and discuss it and have fun with it. So it's not always about chasing the latest release. It's not always about, oh, this is the, the big new name or the big new title to be talking about. But to go back and actually discuss and think about and get more from the texts that we read, that we love, that we enjoy, and to understand or to work toward understanding how and why those texts mean so much to us. And that has been enormously rewarding, far more so than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be very much like me just talking into a camera, click, done, and then going on with my day. But it's an evolving conversation with everyone. And so learning that I need to listen to people and not just respond, you know, as if I'm looking at a text message from my family and you just respond. I, I need to take the time and sometimes I don't do that and I have to set aside part of my day and learning to schedule that so I'm not just responding offhand or in the moment that I'm actually giving people time uh, that they deserve for me to consider things and that is has been a learning experience for me as well that um, sometimes I, I in trying to answer all comments or to, to respond to everyone I'm not giving each individual comment the time it deserves. And that, that has led to misunderstandings over, uh, over the last two years now that I've been doing this, which I deeply regret. And I hope that uh, the people involved in that know that, you know, I never intended to be flippant or facetious. <laughs> but, you know, it's all part of a learning experience where you don't, you can't read body language. You can't read tone. Um, where you're responding to literal words on a page that maybe they haven't taken the time to craft in terms of effectively communicating what they mean. So it's a constant guessing game and I'm getting better at that. I didn't spend a huge amount of time on various internet fora or um, a lot of social media exchanges. I, that wasn't a big part of my life. And so learning to read that, that style of communication that was something I have had to learn and I'm still learning because it's not something I do. And 
you all know this quite quite straightforwardly. If you're writing a formal email to um, an employer or a prospective employer or some sort of government, you, know, you don't go, hi, bye, G, what's going on? <laughs> you, you structure it formally and you, you, you put it as, as if it was a formal letter. And then if you're writing to um, someone you know, but you don't know particularly well, again, it's sort of semi-formal. If you're writing to a friend or a family member, it, it's much more informal. And so even in how you would structure an email, how you would write it, the words you choose, how you would um, put the information in, you change that. You, uh, in effect, code switch. You move between different registers of language. And so when you comment on an internet forum, what what way are you commenting? Are you commenting in a very formal way, an informal way, semi-formal? Are you making sure that you're very clear and articulate? Are you treating the person you're responding to as a close personal colleague, someone that you are, you know, speaking to informally or are you treating them formally because you don't know them they are a stranger and therefore you aim to be more polite all of those things are things that people um i would say perhaps younger than me grew up with learning that internet um sort of protocol that system of communication and i didn't that's not something i grew up with and so that is, that has been a struggle of mine trying to learn the different ways to communicate like that. Couple points from that that really stuck out to me. One is that, first off, thank you for making the effort to reach out to people who don't know the language that you're used to using. Uh, because I think sometimes in academia that can be used to make oneself feel higher than others that they're talking to. And I think it's, it's very clear in the way that you use your channel and interact with people that that's not your goal in using that language. And so I just want to make sure that I say it doesn't feel that way <laughs> at all, even though I didn't know any of the words that you used in your example. So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> but but I do think that it comes through that that effort is being made, you know, that there's, you know, it's not used as a holier than thou aspect. And also, as someone who who grew up, I grew up without internet, and then the internet happened while I was growing up. So I was in the middle of that transition. And, you know, internet language changes so quickly. Like, I used to use G2G, got to go, you know, when I had, like, the, the, the keypads that you had to type one by one. Uh, <laughs> and if you use that now, everyone's like, ew. Like what, what era are you from? Right. So <laughs> it Hashtag changes lol. so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, we can hear you now. Or like, I unfortunately was alive during that raw thing people would do and they pretend to be, you know, like it just, it changes quickly. So I think <laughs> that adjustment <laughs> Uh, is something that we all go through every couple of years when you're no longer mm -hmm. the people making the standards for that, when you're no longer of the youth. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think some people would argue that I've never been part of the youth, um, <laughs> that I've always been a grumpy old man. And, you know, and I, I, I play one on TV. Um, <laughs> I, I am I genuinely just kind of a, a grumpy curmudgeon a lot of the time. And but the thing is, I care so passionately about things, and the uh, in particular, like when 
like I, I've spent uh, nearly over 20 years, probably longer, studying stories, like studying stories, not, not just reading them, 20 years studying them. And in that time, you become a bit obsessive. And in fact, I think a lot of people would say you need to be a little bit obsessive about something in order to start a YouTube channel to be talking about the thing that you're slightly obsessive about. Um, and that passion and obsession can sometimes lead to confusion because, you know, other people go and they just are dismissive. And again, sometimes you take that as a personal criticism that someone doesn't care as passionately about something as you do. And there's a, there's a phrase that gets used and I know people don't mean it the way that I interpret it, but the number of times I have heard people say, well, I don't care about the pros. And every time it is like nails on a chalkboard on my soul when someone says that. <laughs> I know exactly what that triggered in PL. I exactly. Oh my God, thank you. Taylor knows me well. Thank you. Thank you, AP, for saying that. Thank you. Because, no, the thing is, I know what people gener generally seem to mean by that is when they read, they're not paying special attention to the pros. They're not paying special attention to it. And, you know, even if it's a bit clunky or even if it's not the world's most polished form, as long as the story is still engaging, as long as the characters are still engaging, they, they'll enjoy the book. And you go, right. But that's not the same as not caring about the pros that the, or the pros doesn't matter because you do not have a book without the prose. The prose does matter because how the story is articulated is the thing that makes the story. It is the thing that makes the narrative that you are consuming. If, if it didn't, if it wasn't important at all, then you could simply read a list of bullet points telling you what happened. And that isn't engaging. Clearly, how the story is told, how the narrative is being narrated to you, is really, really important. Now, the difference is why I think um, prose is incredibly important is if you have... Now, and the thing is, all, all works that get published have a certain standard. And, and that's the thing, we're never talking about something that is absolutely illegible and you cannot read. And I think that's part of the discussion, that we forget that the worst aspects of bad writing, we never see because no one ever publishes that. So there's already, it's not ever that it is really bad prose. We're already dealing with the, the upper echelons of, of writing. And the second thing is, if you took something that was mediocre, that had errors in it, that wasn't expressed well, that wasn't polished. And it was uh, an interesting story. It had interesting characters. And you go, so I struggled through how it was expressed and I still managed to enjoy it. And you go, right. Now, if you took exactly that same text and you fixed how it was expressed, you, the person who doesn't really care about prose that much, you're still going to enjoy it. You, because it's going to have all of the things that you like. 
and it's going to be easier to read, easier to consume. So you're still going to do it. It's not going to alter uh, in a negative sense anything about your experience. But it will make a lot of people who need the story to be well told, it'll make their experience better. And so it is a win-win when the prose is good, that it it increases the the number of people who can appreciate the, the narrative in front of them. And so prose is incredibly important. The style an author uses is important. How they express things is, is so fundamental to how we perceive what is going on. Word choice about um, how a character is described. If they're described as a barbarian or a savage, those words carry meaning and connotation. They, they carry cultural weight to them. And so if you call someone a knight, uh, a warrior, a barbarian, um, a soldier, you go, oh, well, I'm just describing like a general fighter type character. And you go, no, you're not. Because each one of those, while they all have a melee aspect to them, each one of those has connotations. And they conjure different images and feelings in the mind of the reader. And so by being careful about how even something as simple as that is expressed, you can actually, as an author, create a more concrete picture in the mind of a reader to get across your image of that character more effectively. And that's why when people say, the prose doesn't matter, I don't care about the prose. It's nails on a chalkboard in my soul. You know, um, and you're forgive the roundabout question, AP, and this is directly leading to your work as a developmental editor, which is something that, you know, we haven't really got the chance to delve into you. Uh, with yet and we're fascinated so this is where the, the question leads so I just moved residences I'm still organizing my bookshelves but on my bookshelf uh, if you see so we have I'm surrounded by some of my favorites we have Jenny Wirtz um, here Bernard Cornwell um, is up there George Martin George R. Martin Tad Williams and, oh um, Miles Cameron slash Christian Cameron Tessa Grattan um, books writers that their prose wows me dazzles me, takes me straight into the book and immerses me in a way that, you know, I could sit for hours and forget where I am. And uh, and I'm not picking on this particular individual because he is obviously a fantastic writer and and, he, and his his reach, his reach is immense. And Taylor and I are actually uh, planning to, Taylor's going to help me, Taylor and some friends who uh, read him a lot are going to help me, uh, you know, with my my journey into uh, Brandon Sanderson, very much the way AP you've you've helped me and others with uh, with Steven Erickson and, and Miles in. So, but uh, Taylor knows well, and this is why she was laughing so much when I was, you know, about being triggered that I I I am struggling um, as great as some of the storytelling is, as much as I love some of the characters um, and the characterization work that Brandon says it does, I struggle with his prose. And it's not that he can't write. It's just that for me, it's it I, sometimes it just doesn't work for me. And uh, so my my again, apologies for the roundabout um, question, but so specifically to you as a developmental editor. So and I, I we do want to hear about about what you do with that and, and what you have done with that in the past. When you when you have a client 
And uh, the pros isn't is something that they need to work with. Is that almost like a showstopper? Because, you know, as you said, without the pros, you know, the book uh, essentially isn't going to be at a certain level. So if you have an writer that has, you know, they have some great plot lines and some great ideas and, you know, however, their pros need to work, what do you work on or what would you recommend they do with that to make their book, you know, a better book? Well, for a start, I'd like to clear up a misconception. People think that I... I dislike Brandon Sanderson and and his work. I really liked uh, Mistborn, The Final Empire, the first book in Era One. And I actually enjoyed aspects of the second book. And I really loved how he finished the story off in the third book. And I can't remember. But that first Mistborn trilogy, I really enjoyed it. It was a great caper book is the first one. And then I liked what was developed in the end. Um, one, it's one of my favorite YA fantasy series that has that I've encountered. Um, Stormlight Archive. I love a lot of the stuff that Sanderson does in the Stormlight Archive. But PL, just like you, I struggle with the style that Sanderson is employing, and it is it is a very deliberate style that he employs. Sanderson teaches creative writing. He understands creative writing. If you read his novella, The Emperor's Soul you know that he knows how to write. It's not that he is, he can't write. He has made a very deliberate decision to write in a certain way, to express his story in a certain way. And that style that he employs, I do not enjoy. I don't like it at all. Um, it, we, can, we can categorize a lot of it as, for a start, he likes using um, what I think it was uh, Gardner referred to as like windowing prose. He, he likes to strip away a lot of the the nuance of language to make it very um, straightforward. So that when you do that, you lower the um, literacy bar of your work, which you know that's great. You you are making your work more accessible to other people. Um, to a greater range of people because you've lowered the bar of literacy. And that is, you know, that's wonderful. But it does mean that your, your expression of what is happening is no longer quite as nuanced or uh, artistic or as fluid because you are making sure that you're, no reader is left behind. And when you do that, Readers who are very adept, readers who um, enjoy what you can do with the language, they are not being catered to because it, it's a much more basic style of prose that you're using because you're trying to support readers whose level of literacy is lower. And that's fine, but it does mean that if, if you enjoy um, some of the things that you can do with the English language, you're not going to see that to the same extent in Brandon Sanderson's work. And that is a very deliberate choice on his part. And he does that. The, the second thing is he does a lot of um, info dumping. And the thing is, it, like, I am sure that he, as a creative writing instructor, will tell people, don't info dump. Because it, it's blocky, it's intrusive, it annoys people, and there are more elegant ways to do it. But he does it in his works, in particular in the Stormlight Archive. You see him do this. And 
one of the reasons why he does it, which is, and it's exactly the same reason that lots of other authors do it, is it is useful information for the reader. It is a way to remind the reader of something, even though you're breaking the narrative flow, even though you're adding something in that is artificial to the sequence that a character would um, express or that uh, would naturally flow from where you are. It's giving information to the reader that you know as author the reader wants, and I'm just going to put it in here. And Sanderson does that because it's a way of helping the reader. Now, um, a slightly more negative way of describing that is spoon feeding, treating the reader as if they are, you know, incapable of of remembering things. A more positive way is helping the reader along, giving the reader a helping hand. That they're both different ways of describing the same thing of ensuring that no reader is left behind. And he does this with some of his structural stuff as well, where you have, here's an event that happened. Now, gather around everyone as we discuss the event that just happened and we point out what happened. And then it's, oh, (laughs) did everyone get that, right? Because now we're going to do it again. And you'll see this happening time and time again in a lot of Sanderson's writing. You'll be told that something is going to happen, then the thing will happen, and then people will talk about what happened. And then later on, sometimes, you know, several chapters or there'll be a recap of, do you remember when that thing happened? And it gets brought up again to remind everyone. And it's, I think, part of his ethos that you don't tell a reader something once. You tell the reader once, twice, three times. And they should have it by the third time. And then what you do is later on, you do at least another mention of it again because that fourth time will consolidate the first three times that you've done it. Now, again, that is a very solid strategy for encouraging and supporting weaker readers. And it, it is very, very deliberate. And it works exceptionally well when people are listening to audiobooks and are half listening because you don't have to pay as much attention when you know that the information is going to come around again and again and again. And it works really well. But when when you're reading and you're used to reading and, and paying attention, it can feel incredibly laborious and repetitive. And for me, that is why I do not enjoy that style. And anyone who is teaching a creative writing course, and I know Sanderson has his online lectures where he talks about a lot of this stuff, that there's a reason why you don't repeat information time and time again, because it will annoy certain readers. There's a reason why you don't have info dumps, because it breaks the narrative, it throws people out of the narrative. And it is always a trade-off between all of these different things. And Sanderson, clearly very, very successful. He gets people involved in fantasy. He gets people interested in fantasy. He is a powerhouse of the fantasy world. But, and and this is this goes back to our discussion about prose at the very beginning. I would maintain that um, you could take one of Sanderson's works and you could remove even one of the repetitions of all of these things. You could remove one of them. You could integrate some of the the info dump information, some of that expositional information that's forced in the text. There are ways to integrate that, that you could do a full pass of those novels 
And the thing is, you wouldn't leave any readers behind. The information would still be there. It would still be accessible. But it would become less repetitive. And the thing is, Sanderson has made a choice not to do that. I respect his choice as an author. This is his style. This is what he wants to do. And it is clearly very successful. But it's just not something I personally enjoy. But he has fantastical worlds that he has built. There's this interlinking of the entire Cosmere. There's a lot of sophistication in the mechanisms through which he has designed his plots. Uh, he has designed how this story is going to flow and interact. That he works so hard on those aspects. And I, I do respect him as an author. I just don't enjoy reading his books the same way that I enjoy reading the, the books of other people whose writing I enjoy as well as the characters and the story and the plot and the world and all of those elements. But I enjoy their writing as well. I just, I don't enjoy Sanderson's writing to the same extent. And that doesn't mean that people who enjoy his writing are bad or wrong. You go, no, we all have different reasons why we read, what we want to get out of the books that we are reading. And just as you may love Sanderson, I don't. But I don't say to you, oh, well, you love Sanderson, you're clearly an idiot. But yet, if I say that I don't enjoy Sanderson's book, we go, oh, well, AP's just elitist. He just doesn't like Sanderson. Because you're like, no, I have stated preferences the same as everyone else. I have personal things that I love. And Sanderson as an author, with the exception maybe of The Emperor's Soul, doesn't really fulfill those. So why would I lie to people? Go, oh, yeah, well, I love Sanderson when clearly I don't. But it doesn't mean that I hate him or I think his books are terrible. It just means that there's aspects of his writing I don't like. Um, but I've forgotten what the other part of your question was, PL. Well, this is all about, and I apologize, I started, I probably started started a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a tangent here, but part of my question was because we don't know a lot, we know so much about you and so many wonderful things about you and there's so many wonderful things to know, but your editing life, your life as an editor, as a developmental editor, because my question was more about, um, you know, how you guide people in terms of, of uh, specifically the aspect of writing good prose, et cetera, right? And, and I totally concur that, you know, Sanderson has done something that is, you know, he's cornered the market on accessibility. He's cornered the market on making his novels something that a broad spectrum of readers would, would want to read because of his prose. And I love, I absolutely love his world building. I absolutely love his characterizations and what he does with, with so many things. I, I really do. Um, you know, it's just that, again, for me, it's not even so much some of the features you you mentioned, the info dump thing. I, I can live with all of that. Some of those features I see in my own writing. But but for me, it's more the uh, the technical aspects of the prose, the, the, the prose being lyrical, um, you know, the prose being evocative, the prose being something that, you know, I, again, and I, I point to those, those writers, the Tessa Grattons, the, the Jenny Wirtz, the, the, you know, the Miles Cameron, the Bernard Cornwells, where the way they write, the sentence structure, the words they use, um, you know, how they write it, um, the, the, the lines, that the, the passages that stay with you. That's the stuff that I, I, I found missing more from Sanderson. But that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the book. I read one read, read book from him, Way of Kings, and, and it was, a lot of things were fantastic, but Taylor knows 
and we talked about this. It, it was the, the actual writing. But sorry, back to my question. So, so maybe I should frame this differently. As a developmental <laughs> editor, what do you do? Um, how do you um, help people and address? <laughs> you've been uh, you've been outed. We, we I'm Thank sorry, you. we didn't need to out you, about, but I'm kind of there. So, whole. Paul is is part of this contingent that perpetuates. This is a, this is the same sort of lie that AP hates audiobooks, and you're like, I don't <laughs> audiobooks, but audio. Oh, ah, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So back to development. Like, what do you do? How do you do it? Um, yeah, I'm gonna shut up and let you talk. Well, <laughs> the thing. First of all, wait, PL. As you know, there there are lots of different types of editors. Um, developmental editing is is usually the the if you're doing like a full line of edits all the way along with all these different developmental editing is, is one of the earliest stages and uh, typically uh, an author has completed a manuscript they've gone through it themselves uh, a couple of times to uh, ensure that things are consistent that they flow that um, the characterization works across it the character arcs are in place they um, the sequence of events, the plot, that there aren't gaping holes in, in all of these things. But because authors can be, at that stage, too close to their text, quite often that's why they employ, or someone employs on their behalf, a developmental editor. That We come in, we are a fresh pair of eyes, and we typically look at things in terms of the broader structures. Uh, so just very brief story and plot story, the sequence of the narrative events arranged chronologically. So if you have a flashback in the middle of your uh, book about the early years of the character story would put that at the beginning, because that's the earliest point in time. And so you would arrange all of the events chronologically that story plot is the sequence of the narrative events as you encounter them in the narrative. So, uh, for for example, Iron Man, uh, the film Iron Man, the sequence where you have that flashback to being in the casino and being on the plane, that actually occurs after that whole initial thing. Story, you would put that at the very beginning. Plot, we not, why, is it, why has it been moved? What does that affect change? By showing him do the presentation and then get wounded before we find out that he is a womanizing, alcoholic, untrustworthy, bit of a, an annoying person who, you know, maybe if they'd showed that first, we would be less sympathetic to Tony when he gets injured. And the film and character would have to work harder to gain our sympathy. But if we show him being funny and doing his presentation and then getting injured, more sympathy is generated. Then we find out more about him but we are already on his side. So you can see why story and plot in that instance are different. They create different effects in, in that case, the viewer. So for developmental editing, quite often you look at the sequence that an author has done. You look at their plot and you go, you want me to like this character. I don't like this character because you're spending all of this time showing these things. And I get that this is important and I get that these things happen, but it makes me less sympathetic. One of the ways that you can correct this is either move those events to later on and have a, an event earlier on that makes me like him. And this is 
the genesis of the Sea of the Cat style of screenplay writing, where you begin with the character that you want your audience to identify with, to, to, um, to sympathize with, to empathize with, to engage with. You have them do something nice at the beginning. In the opening five minutes, save a cat, save a little old lady, defy orders from the, uh, from the man in order to do some good, and they come out triumphant at the end of it. Next time you're watching a mainstream sort of blockbuster movie, pay attention to those first five minutes to see where the character does something that you know maybe they shouldn't do, but they went out of their way, and that, that signals to you that they're a nice person, that they're a good person. Look at how often that is employed in uh, Hollywood movies. And it is a very straightforward narrative technique. And you know someone in Hollywood has made a fortune by basically taking very simple, straightforward um, structuralist approach to narrative, giving it a fancy name, and then um, putting in you know, where this should happen in terms of pages and minutes in a film. And they've generated an entire industry out of this, which you know, academics who uh, study this stuff go, yeah, but this is really basic stuff. Like this, this honestly is narrative 101. But you would look as a, an editor, you look at that sort of thing. But what you do not do is you say to the author, you must move because you're not the author. You are the editor. And you're saying, this is the section. This is causing, potentially going to cause this issue. This is why it is potentially going to cause this issue. This issue can be addressed by these different options. But it is up to the author to decide what option they want to do, if they want to do any of them. And they might go, no, 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 I want you to dislike this character at this stage. You know, okay. And this is why when, when, we, when I do um, editing work, not only do you make notes in the manuscript and then send them uh, an email with a summary of certain information. And you also do an editorial letter where you go into detail about some of these very significant things all the way down. And then you suggest a bunch of things as well. You do all of that. Then you set up conference calls. You set up a, a meeting to talk through everything, to give, to give, A, to give the author a chance to get additional feedback on something maybe in your notes that they didn't understand. You work with an author to help them express their story the best way that they can, to make it the truest version and most polished version of their story. It's not about saying to an author, right, well, if you dumb down the language here, you might make it more accessible. But you can point things out going, right, you're using highly archaic language. This is highly stylized language. You are aware that this can be off-putting. And if the author goes, yes, you go, fine. You've done your job. You've highlighted the issue. You've said what the issue is, why it could be a problem, and what the effect is going to be. And if the author goes, yeah, but I'm fine with that. Great. It's your book. It's your story. You tell it the way that you want. I'm only doing my job by... Uh, identifying things, highlighting them, explaining what the issue may potentially be, giving a potential fix. And it's up to the author to enact that. And so with a lot of developmental editing, it's less about line-by-line edits. It's much more about 
um, characters, uh, what commonly are called plot holes, um, about movements, about, uh, for instance, pacing. The, how does how does the flow of the story fit? It starts to feel slow. What people would call a slog, and you go, and I've I've talked about this before. Slog is about perception of pacing. It's not about the actual pacing itself. It's when a reader is feeling bored, and therefore everything slows down because they're bored and they're having to. Whereas when they're excited, when they're engaged, they don't notice reading. They're just reading and reading and eating the boards voraciously. It feels that the book is just flying through because you're so immersed in it. But if you're bored, it feels slow. And that has nothing to do with the actual pace. That's about perception of pace. You say, why does this section feel slow? And it's, well, look at when the last time you had action was. And action is not necessarily just fighting. Um, conflating fighting and action or violence and action is, is quite common, but it's not about that. Um, but there's not a huge amount moving here. So that's one thing to look at. Also, let's look at how often a, a character feels. If a character is constantly feeling and it's not funny, if it's just constantly they, they are just falling on their face, you go, why am I reading this? This is just miserable. Or if they're constantly succeeding, you go, why are you even bother putting this in? This, this, I know this part. As soon as this thing starts, I just know that they're going to win. And it's all about looking at these trends and trying to establish in this chapter, this happens in this chapter, this happens. look at this pattern that is being developed. Look at the movement that is being developed. Look at how you always follow that section with that section. You always open or you frequently open up um, a chapter with and you do this. And that happens chapter after chapter. So it becomes repetitive it's not a stylistic thing anymore it's repetition it's a tick it's something that is actually harming your writing this description is wonderful does the description of the setting need to be seven pages long it's beautiful i loved every element of it but it's seven full pages of this wonderful look around a city okay you've designed it in your head and you know what it looks like i don't need for seven full pages. Remember it. Use sections of it later on. But for the love of all that is holy, have something happen somewhere in this. But it's... And while I, like, I've just joked about that, I have the utmost respect for any author, for someone who has taken the time to write a book, to sit down. They have written the whole thing. They have finished it. That is an achievement in and of itself. And my job is never to ridicule, never to impose what I want. My job is to try to help that author find and express the best possible version of their story. If they want to use very extravagant, lyrical, poetic prose, my job is to help that. If they want very streamlined, Hemingway-esque, short, um, clean prose. My job is to help them do that. If they want to create a really objectionable um, anti-hero, my job is to help them do that. It has nothing to do with what I want. 
or what I think should happen. Oh, the, this character. Well, I like. I think that character should just be better. You know, it, it's not about what I want. It's about looking at what they have put on the page and helping them get that vision out there in the best possible way. So while it's not what you want as an editor, it's allowing the author's voice to shine through. Have you ever experienced a situation, of course, without names or anything, but where as an editor, you see a work just as a reviewer, we might see, you know, a book and be like, that's not for me. Just using uh, Sanderson as an example, because it's already out there. <laughs> but, you know, if you were to see someone's prose or their way of writing and see it's very similar to Sanderson with the repetition, because in, in my mind, uh, you're definitely on point. Sanderson does repeat things. And a lot of that is because I believe his goal is like the Sanderlanch at the end where he does all of these reveals at once and you have to remember these things. So he's like, don't forget this. It's going to be important in the, like, the end of my book. And that's very, I think, Marvel-esque, Hollywood-esque. When people say they like the Marvel universe, I say, you're going to like Sanderson then. So I think his goal is different, um, which you've you said. But just because you know that doesn't mean that you know you're not going to enjoy the process of getting there if you have to read the same thing four times, even if there's a point to it. So I'm wondering if as an editor, you utilize discretion in the way that reviewers do and just being like, thank you for reaching out, but I don't think this is the one for me or I'm who you're looking for in this case. Is that something an editor, maybe not you specifically, but an editor can and should do? I certainly in correspondence with certain people have declined to edit their and part of the reason has been one of the things that I frequently do, uh, particularly if it is a new client, I will suggest that they send me a very short sample, um, one scene from their, their book, usually from the, the, the prologue or chapter one or just, just one scene. I say, send me the scene. Let me have a look at it. Let me read through the scene just so I can make some general notes. Um, I'll send you back my my feedback on it. And that way we will know, we'll get a better idea if we want to work together because it is important that an author trust their editor. But not every editor's style, just like not every author's style fits every reader, not every editor's style fits every author. And so it is very important that there is a level of trust between the author and the editor. The editor has to be able to help that author. The author has to be able to take the editor's feedback and work together. There have been clients in the past who, when they have sent me their work, I have said, uh, you know, in discussion with them, listen, I would love to work with you. This looks engaging, but you will get more out of this if you take some time now and do a second editing pass on your own, a second polishing phase on your own, because there are some fundamental aspects to what you have done here. That if I was going to comment every time that they uh, occurred, the every single line 
would have this. Or there's just going to be one comment at the start of the chapter that is going to read X, Y, and Z. And then the next chapter will be exactly the same because until those aspects are dealt with, until you, you've addressed that, we can't get to the other things because when you address those aspects, those other things are going to change naturally as a consequence. So we could go through it. You can pay me and I will take your money quite happily. Yeah, I'm a capitalist. I live in this world and have to pay rent. I'll take your money. I'll give you this advice. And it'll be the same advice for every single chapter. And then you'll make those changes and it'll fundamentally change a lot of your book. And then you'll have to pay me again to do it again. And it'll be because the manuscript is so radically different, you'll have to pay me the full fee again. And that is a waste of your money. Now, obviously, if I was a true capitalist, I go, yes, pay me. Pay me twice. I think it is... For me personally, I prefer to say to a prospective client, listen, you will get more out of this if you do another pass first yourself. Polish it until you think this is absolutely finished. And then we talk. And then we do this. Because in those circumstances, um, they get the most out of it. But also, I don't get frustrated having to comment on the same things over and over and over again. They're not stylistic that are problems with how something has been constructed. And that's frequently when an author um, has sent the manuscript off to an editor too early, where it's still in rough. And to get the most out of any editor, the more polished your manuscript is, the more an editor can help you refine it. The, the editor is not there to take the rough building block and shape it all for you. The editor is there to help you refine it, to find rough patches and smooth them out, to show you where those are that maybe you didn't see them. Um, <clears throat> so certainly, yes, there, there have been people that I have suggested that they, they take another pass before in engaging me. <clears throat> I, I I think that is the responsible thing to do, particularly because editing is not cheap. Um, you know, I know you are all big champions of um, self-published and independently published works. And one of the one of the things that uh, being traditionally published gets you access to are editing services, because if you think you want a developmental editor, a line editor, a copy editor, you might need a typesetter depending on how comfortable you are personally doing all of these different elements or finding these different elements, that's four professional services. And that doesn't even include um, cover design, artwork for the cover. Um, those There's a lot that happens in traditional publishing that maybe people aren't aware of. And editing is one of them. Editing is one of the really expensive things. And um it, it is a burden on the independent or self-published author to go if you want to pay for an editor and you want a professional editor it's unfortunately it's expensive it's like getting legal advice you can you can get legal advice for free online or you can pay an actual professional 
And as soon as you start having to pay an actual professional, that's expensive. And you go, but why is it so expensive? All you had to do was write a letter. You go, all I had to do was write a letter based on the qualifications I have and the 25 years experience that I have and write you the right letter. That That's why editing is, is expensive. And ultimately, um, it can be a very predatory market because a lot of authors are saying, people go, oh, I'll edit your book. I'll do this. And they go, this is what I charge. You know, um, it's one of the reasons why on um, when I, I, I'm dealing with clients, I go, here's the, here's the industry rate in America, in the UK, in Ireland. Go and check these independent websites. Before we discuss how much you're paying me, go and have a look at what these three different industry bodies say is the, the standard rate. Then we'll talk about it. And that way, um, prospective authors know what the ballpark is going to be. And the thing is, every every uh, project is individual. Every manuscript is an individual project with its own needs and wants and desires and, and things to be taken into account. There's no just simple, it's this price, that's it. You always discuss a project with a client, but they need to know what the ballpark is. And quite frankly, people go, oh, well, I can... I can find someone on Fiverr who'll do this cheaper. And, you know, to those people, I have said, yes, you can. Um, and I wish you the best of luck. And it, it's not me trying to be snotty. It's not me trying to um, say that I'm better than everyone else. You go, no, there will be people who will do it cheaper than I do. But there's a reason I charge the rate that I charge. I think it is fair. I think it is reasonable. It's based on my experience. It's based on my education. And it's based on a lot of these, these different factors that I think I bring to it. And I think this is fair based on the industry rates. For other people to go, yeah, but that's expensive. You go, yes, it is. And it, there's no way around that. It, it's an expensive service. Um, some people may feel that, you know, it's not worth it. And you go, well, okay. I'm. I'm. I will never force anyone to hire me. It's not, it's not like I go around to the house going, "You must hire me. You must do." It. No. <laughs> if it's too expensive, it's too expensive. But you don't then say you don't go. Oh, that lawyer's very expensive. Is there any chance you could, you know, like just do it for a tenner because that's all I can afford? And the lawyer's going, "No, no, I can't." <laughs> well, why not? Is it because I have to pay rent as well? I have to eat. It reminds me of the tattoo world. When I hear people look bargain shopping for tattoos, I'm like, don't get a tattoo. Just don't, don't do it <laughs> because you're going to pay for what you get. And if that's what you want, you know, and I think it's just a very visual representation of how people look for uh, deals in the arts, maybe mm -hmm. uh, tattoos you can see and they're on you forever. But in general, people look to cut corners often in the art world and it, it does show tattoos you have, you know, the show forever, but I do think that that mentality is dangerous. Also, it's being unsafe and it's unsafe, right? You get a tattoo artist that isn't, uh, you know, doesn't exercise the proper sanitary practices with their needles and stuff, <laughs> get hepatitis or, I mean, it's serious, right? So Yes. But, but Taylor, how, how did you there. know I have a tattoo parlor that I operate out of the back of my apartment? <laughs> Oh, I know. All, I know all your secrets. it up as a hobby. <laughs> Doing scratcher work in the background while you yeah. edit. 
God, I wish that. I hope that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I wanted to ask, and this isn't about his, what you did specifically on his book. Um, but I wanted to ask you in general about your wonderful relationship with your evil arch nemesis, uh, Dr. Philip Chase, because another great friend of the channel, I hope he's lurking. Ah, speak of the nemesis and he shall appear. <laughs> well, he was here earlier, but he had yeah. to leave for tennis. He had to he play said. tennis. Oh, yes. He's fit and fabulous. Uh, yes. Dr. Chase. I hear he's challenged AP and I'm not sure if AP is. Are you are you up to that challenge, AP? Are you are you going to take him on, or <laughs> I, I'll play I'll play Philip Tennis on the Wii. <laughs> there we go. Just add an addendum there. He didn't stipulate that it couldn't be. That, so. I, 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 I'll be even fair on the Wii on the PS five or four or three. You know, it's it's up to him to choose that one. <laughs> Uh, on the Xbox, I, I am happy to play <laughs> Philip Tennis on any of those uh, different things. Does that give you distinct advantage, AP, playing rather than on a live court, playing virtually? Is that? Have you not that... seen the video of Philip trying to play Witcher 3? No. No. Oh, no. 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 On his channel, it's one of the <laughs> earliest videos on his channel. One of his students tried to show him how to play The Witcher 3. So I know what I'm watching. Yeah. Next, yes. Tonight, <laughs> it's like watching a puppy walk for the first time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Well, I, I know there's nothing but 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 love and respect and mutual admiration between you two. So, but but we're you know, how did you to meet? How did you you know forge this this wonderful relationship? Now you're uh, you are the editor for his his upcoming fantasy series um you know how 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 did how did that all all happen um well philip has told this story a number of times that he had done a, a video on the history of fantasy and this is how fantasy was whatever he'd gone through the major books that had influenced fantasy and it, it's an impressive list and he he covers a lot of the angles and then i commented and saying well there, there's two that i feel that are missing from this and one was D that obviously because of my my phd i think dnd had an enormous impact on the genre mm-hmm. um and the other was david gemmel um as not necessarily david gemmel himself but david gemmel is representative of a uk movement of fantasy that was not represented in what philip was talking about that ultimately i think evolved into or was was part of the movement toward grimdark um, or the establishment of Grimdark as a sort of popular subgenre. So I made a comment about this, and uh, Philip had replied to it. You know, Philip is very good, much better than I am about replying to people and, and adding the comments. And uh, I then it was clear that this guy actually knew what he was talking about in his video. So I was watching more of the videos. Frequently, when I see a video um, on YouTube of someone saying this, I'm going to explain this thing about the history of fantasy, and I. I listened to it for a bit and go, you know what? No, you. I appreciate that you've looked this thing up and you think that this, but you don't know enough about this. And no, and I will turn the video off because um, I, I don't respect their opinion about that aspect of uh, fantasy, that that's not their 
milieu. That's not their their strength. Uh, Philip clearly did know what he was talking about, but there were omissions. And so we began a backwards and forwards. And I then looked at a number of his other videos and, and commented on a couple of those. And that's when Philip spotted, because at that time I was using um, my account that had my name. And it's, it's something I've tried to change now so that um, my name isn't plastered all over things, mm -hmm. that it's just the channel, uh, a critical dragon. And then people know to call me AP. But I, I try to keep my private life separate from a lot of the online stuff. And I'm not entirely successful because I'm not as IT and, and uh, computer savvy as a lot of people. But Philip spotted my name, realized that there was a similarity between my name and uh, the acknowledgements in certain Malazan works. So he messaged me about it. Um, and I had... I responded, yes, that, that is me. We, he then contacted me and asked, would I be interested in having a discussion, to record a discussion for his channel about some of the Malazan stuff? And that is, you know, it's up on his channel. It, uh, it is the first time I had done any of that sort of thing. And it is incredibly awkward for me. And I'm, I'm sitting there, I, I had tried to set things up, didn't know how to do anything at all. Like, the setup I have is pretty informal and it's not exactly professional at that point in time i was petrified this is, this is horrible i don't like this um and i was really uncomfortable for it but philip was trying like and he was really interesting and engaging to talk with as you know having spoken to him like he is a nice guy and we had a great chat and he then along with Stephen erickson was where the ones emailing me going hey, hey Pete, you should you should start a channel and you should talk about those things that you want to talk about in your way because not everyone talks about them. Um, it, it's another voice to the chorus. Um, and, you know, I, I add, I hope, to the collective approaches to fantasy and to, to storytelling. That's wonderful. Oh, I just had a couple of comments here. It's, uh, apologies to get, I get to wrapped up in, in AP and, or in Critical Dragon, and I forget to read the comments, but... Uh, Senator friend, hello to our friend Katarina. She's finally able to catch one of these live canceled time zones. I agree. Yes. Uh, our friend Layla's here. I listen to AP when I drive to and from work. I enjoyed his piece on Mary Sue's Gary Sue's. I like hearing his take on structural details to story histories of language. It's great when Doctor Chase. Uh, it's great when Doctor Chase joins too. Yeah, Philip keeps me honest. <laughs> Uh, I missed the first part of this convo, but code switching is an important skill for the speaker and the listener. We need to recognize what is being communicated, even though different cultural norms. Oh, um, just just on that point that that Leila uh, brought up there, it is it is something we all do to a greater or lesser extent, and we we often do it without realizing it. And it was something that uh, way back in the day, I happened to be talking to uh, Books with Brittany about um, reviewing, and I said. When you do a book review, who are you imagining your audience is? Because how you structure it and how you talk is actually influenced by who you imagine that you are talking to. Because whether or not you've, you've specifically written down all of these things, you've, you've imagined a level of education, um, quite often a, a gender, quite often an age group, a demographic. You've imagined a certain demographic breakdown of who you're speaking to. 
And we, we don't often think about this because our default, if we're not thinking about it, is usually, well, how would I explain this to myself? And so we project ourselves as the universal other. And I said, but think about it this way. If you were to give your review of that book and you were going to be just as absolutely honest about it, I'm not asking you to change what you are saying. I'm, I'm going to ask you to think about how you say it. But you were to give it to, say, at that time, the Queen of England or the, the King of England. If you've been invited to Buckingham Palace to give a, a presentation on this book, to give this review because the King of England has asked for it, would you give it in exactly the same way? Now, if you were asked to deliver it to Congress, a joint session of Congress, and you're going to walk in and they wanted to hear your book report, your book review, would you deliver it in the same way? If you were giving it to a group of um, high schoolers, would you give it in exactly the same language? No one is asking you to change the content in terms of whether you like the book, whether you didn't like the book, your evaluation of whether this is good writing or bad writing. No one's asking you to change any of that. But think about how you would actually express it. <clears throat> and that can change depending on your audience. And as soon as, like, just putting it in those terms, I think most people would say, no, I, people who say, oh, no, I, I would give it in exactly the same way. And I'm like, no, you would. You're going to walk up to the King of England and deliver it in exactly the same way that you, you would give it to a bunch of high schoolers. Either you're lying or you, you honestly don't, aren't thinking about your audience at all. And if you're not thinking about your audience, then how can you communicate effectively to that audience? Knowing who your audience is, is part of communication. It's not just yelling into the void. It's finding effective ways to communicate. Um, and so code switching is an important part of that. And we do it in our private lives. How we speak to our parents, how we speak to our siblings, how we speak to our friends, how we speak to our boss at work. One of those things is definitely not like the other. How we speak to someone in the street who is a stranger, how we address a, a waiter or a, um, a someone working a bar in a restaurant. How do you address them? Do you assume that you are their social superior or do you treat them as a human being? Do you treat them as an equal? Do you respect them? How is respect being delivered in these different power hierarchies and structures? Because soon as you start thinking about it, it helps you evaluate um, it helps you evaluate who you are and how you perceive society. Society is not a simple construct. It's very complex. And by recognizing how we treat other people and why we treat other people differently can, can help us analyze that and also help us then grow as a person to see areas in which we are deficient. It's like in this country, it is so common when you're getting off a bus for almost almost everyone getting off the bus will go, thank you very much. As they get off the bus, everyone thanks the bus driver. And yet I, I happened to be in the States and I was getting the bus and I was the only person that thanked the bus driver. And you go, but it's just a polite thing to do as you're leaving. Like he, he's, they've driven you around the city. Yes, you paid, but and you go, thank you very much and, and walk off. And people looked at me weirdly as if, like, did you know him? Like, no, I didn't know him. <laughs> but it, it's just ingrained in me from here. And 
also, you know, I, I liked it when, when I had a job working in bars and in restaurants, when customers were polite to me. And so I've always tried to remember that. But code switching is, is an important practice. And again, it goes to who is your audience deciding how to communicate this information, which, you know, takes us back into prose and style. And how you communicate your story is actually really, really important. <laughs> We're coming full circle. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, that really strikes a chord with me as someone who uh, Japanese is. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <just couldn't help> <laughs> uh, as someone who's who has you know learned Japanese these past couple of years, and my husband you know, that's his native language. It's a very stratified language. There's actually three different languages, ones that you use for people lateral to you in society or above or perceived lower or family. Uh, there's completely different words that you use. And I find that that, when I speak English, has kind of, uh, my brain gets confused <laughs> because I know I'm speaking English, but the, I end up applying these rules that don't apply to English. Uh, which is a very interesting experience for me when I'm when I'm speaking. I've also noticed that I say sorry a lot because the translation in Japanese is not, it's more nuanced. It's like, it can be excuse me, it can be sorry, or uh, a starter to a sentence. But when you translate it, it translates to sorry. So people are like, why are you apologizing? I'm like, I don't actually mean... So... My point is <laughs> code switching is extremely important, especially across cultures. But that also brings to mind, for me, you were discussing, originally this conversation started when you were talking about reviews. And that's something that I have reached out to people uh, on Before We Go blog and things like that when I entered the self-pub space. Because in trad publishing, there is a phrase you'll hear often, which is reviews are for readers which if you're in the space of booktube that I am, that is the case almost 95% of the time. The review is for other readers, not for the author. That's the intended audience that most people have. So when you enter a self-publishing world, coming from that world, even if your audience is still other readers, it's much more likely to reach someone who isn't your intended audience. It's much more likely to reach said author. And that's something I've worked on as a reviewer to try to make sure that I'm code switching in the correct ways, because I think it would be lying to say those spaces are similar. Uh, and it's something that I've been navigating for a little while now. Well, it, it's weird. I, the first time, I, I find it really strange when people talk about a reviewer space, because there is no discrete space. If I go to a booktube channel where they do reviews and they have a TBR video and you go, right, so is the TBR video a reviewer space? Is your entire channel a reviewer space? How many reviews do you need on your channel for it to be considered a reviewer space? If you've done one in a year, do you count as a reviewer? How are we defining this? Where, where are these rules written down? And it's these unwritten rules of social media that have been decided and disseminated as if everyone should know them. And you go, right, well, where is this coming from? Oh, well, it's always been this way. And you go, no, it hasn't. Authors have always had the right of reply to reviewers. There are famous spats 
between authors and reviewers throughout history, where they have had letter writing campaigns, where the, the poison pen, the vitriol is dripping off this. And the newspapers were just publishing one after the other that the uh, reviewer published in the newspaper, the author writes the letter to the newspaper, the newspaper then publishes that rebuttal, and it goes on and on. But what we find now is this idea that, oh no, um, we have a reviewer space. My review is only for readers. And you go, if it's only for readers, then publish it in a fanzine that is sent out and emailed specifically to readers. If you publish your review on YouTube, you are making it public. It is a public publishing platform. You have published a review in public. And people quite frequently on Twitter and other social media go, here's my review of so-and-so's book, and they tag the author in it. If it's just for readers, don't tag the author. If it is a negative review, don't tag the author. That is deliberately asking the author to come and look at your review. If it is solely for readers, never tag the author. If, if you're going to complain about an author, don't tag the author. Because that is specifically asking an author and inviting them into your space when you tag them. And if you tag one author to do that, and you've established that you frequently ask authors to come in, then the unwritten rule is you actually want author engagement. Or, or no, is, is it an unwritten rule that you don't want author engagement until you've said that? The problem with unwritten rules, based on cultural norms and uh, various things, we all come from different cultures. We were all raised different ways. We live in different countries. And we all have different understandings of these things. The one thing that we can agree on is that we've all signed up to the terms of service of, say, YouTube, if we're publishing on YouTube. Looking through those terms of service, the concept of reviewer space does not exist. Reviews typically are for consumers, but they are written with the knowledge that the producer, and this goes across all different sorts of things, may see it. Professional reviewers, yes, some of them are very mean and very horrible, but most professional reviewers are not. Most professional reviewers try to find a way to express themselves, uh, usually distinctly, because they want to stand out from the crowd. But in a way that, should they be challenged on any single point, they have evidence for it. They, they have backup for it. Professional reviewers very rarely say, things, oh, well, this is trash. Because that, that's not a useful reviewing term. It, it isn't. Um, Philip, uh, Philip Chase expressed a really good concept, which is even if you're giving a negative review, a critical, uh, a review that is going to be negatively critical about a book, you try to do it in a way that if the author was sitting in front of you, you would still be comfortable making that point to them. If you cannot express yourself in a way that would be polite, then you haven't thought through what you're saying yet. Mm -hmm. um, it is very important that reviewers not feel intimidated by authors. And authors abuse their position quite frequently. We've seen that in the past, where authors have um, retweeted something to their followers going, oh, look at how terrible this, this person is about my book. And that author knows full well that some of their fans will now go and mob that person. 
And that is absolutely unacceptable. But an author commenting on a video essay is not the same as an author commenting on a review. Video essays clearly are different to reviews. We use different words. Video essay, review. They're different. A discussion panel is not a review. So is an author allowed to, to comment on that? Um, and do you see how quickly this gets muddled and the people going, oh no, but this is a reviewer space. What do you mean? Is your TBR a reviewer space? Is your weekly roundup a reviewer space? Is your conversation with someone else that is titled a conversation about this thing? Is that a reviewer space? How are you defining it? Where is your definition of this? Where is this publicly available definition that I can see before I may accidentally intrude upon your reviewer space? And it's this classification as if suddenly reviewers now are of a different breed and type than they ever were historically. And yes, authors can behave badly, but so can reviewers. People who don't understand the distinction between the author of a work and a narrative perspective. That is a fundamental narrative 101. And yet the number of times you will hear someone go, uh, so-and-so included this in their book, and this means that they are a bad person. And you go, do you actually hear the words coming out of your mouth? This is a work of fiction told from a narrative perspective. And you've equated what happened in that with the historical person, the actual person that wrote it. Now, it could be you have a point. But the mere fact that that thing exists in the book is not evidence of that. That is an accusation about an actual human being. And here's the rub for a lot of these things. Professional reviewers and critics who write for newspapers, one of the things that they're very careful about is libel. One of the things that people on YouTube are absolutely unaware of and will come to bite them in the ass at some point is libel. Because the number of times I have heard slanderous comments on or in a YouTube video, uh, or defamatory comments, because it's libelous, not slanderous, because it's been published. And you go, right, if that author so, choose, uh, so chose, they could flag your video to YouTube and also potentially engage a lawyer to sue you, because what you said is libelous. What you said is untrue. What you said is not based in fact. It is a lie. And uh, you are clearly aware that there is no basis, in fact, for what you have just said. And you have still published it. Or you are reckless as to whether or not it is based in fact. But people seem to think that because they said it in an, in, on a video on YouTube, that, oh, well, it's just my opinion. You go, you published it. There's a very famous case in the UK about Twitter. and publishing a tweet, retweeting a tweet counts as publishing it for the purposes of, of defamation law, libel. And this is something that I think more people online should be aware of. It's not that you have to censor yourself and, and avoid negativity. Um, you know, you can still be outrageous. You can still do it whatever way that you want. 
but to be careful about what you're saying that it's actually rooted in fact or it can be uh, expressed as no no but this is clear that it's just opinion and I wasn't stating it as fact and that's one of the things that professional reviewers are very very good at is knowing where that line is being able to play with that line one of the things that um, amateur reviewers and, and people who do it as a hobby are very bad at is knowing when they have represented something as fact or when they have represented something as opinion and that can get you into incredibly hot work and so people, people talk about authors intruding into reviewer spaces and authors behaving badly. You go, there are far fewer authors than there are reviewers. And even if you say 1% of all authors, 1% of all reviewers, think of the number of reviewers who behave badly. It's, oh, well, authors signed up for this. They shouldn't have published their book if they didn't want to get feedback like this. And you go, you shouldn't publish your review on YouTube if you didn't want to get feedback. It works both ways. Authors write texts, fiction. They publish them. You've published a review and put it into the public sphere. You are now the author of that review. So if you think that no one should be able to comment on your review, then how are you commenting on another author's work? You're the author of that thing. It is, it is very, very difficult. And we've all made missteps in the past. I regret some of the things that I wrote in reviews um, where I wasn't careful enough. That's one of the reasons why I don't review anymore. I don't enjoy it. But it is very important, I think, and I think it would actually help a lot of people to be more respectful in general with how we treat these things. You can still say that you didn't enjoy a book. You didn't enjoy the book because of X, Y, and Z. You thought that the pacing was slow. But algorithms and uh, a lot of how social media interactions work, we are incentivized toward hyperbole. We are incentivized toward sensationalism. We are incentivized to radical positions on a text because the more extreme, the more salacious, the more clicks, the more views, the more interactions, the more revenue, the more the video gets promoted. Ha ha, I'm on my way to actually being able to afford rent this month. All those things are incentivized. And yet they are damning and damaging our critical faculties and, and our ability to have discourse, our ability to actually discuss things meaningfully. Because think of the number of times now that people go, it's a slog. The pacing of this, it's fire, it's a slog. It's these two terms as if that's what pacing is, fast or slow. And it's just degenerated into that. 1984 uh, by George Orwell. Oh, of course we don't need lots of different words to describe how good something is. We have good, plus good, and double plus good. All the other words are superfluous. And because we dumb down, because we restrict our language, because we narrow down our expressions into bland, generic terms, we lose critical nuance. And it makes it harder for us to actually consider things, that concepts become harder to discuss and even think about when we don't have the language for it. And a lot of this is tied up into trying to find sensational ways to discuss things. 
that it's always going for this exaggerated language instead of something that is more balanced, that is more nuanced. It has to be black and white because that's what the algorithm wants. It has to be uh, high octane. That's what the uh, algorithm wants. And it feeds into this cycle. And the thing is, because so many of us consume reviews now online rather than printed reviews, say, in newspapers, that we're now looking at these uh, online reviews. And we are normalizing that language and that approach as the standard. Oh, all of these people do it. That's how I should do it. Instead of looking at what they are doing and going, does is that actually effective in telling me about that book? Or is it, this was highly entertaining. I still know absolutely nothing about the book, but this was, this was great entertainment. And you go, well, okay, that person might be trying to do entertainment. Cinema Sins is perfect uh, example of this. Cinema Sins do entertainment. That is not serious film criticism. And the, the first people to tell you that would be the people who create the Cinema Sins content. They know what they are talking about, but they did a whole comedy routine of, we're going to pretend that this is film criticism. It's a joke. It's meant to be entertainment. And yet, because they became really, really popular, that form of nitpicking um, has become a dominant mode of media analysis for film. And you go, what started as a joke has been taken up by people who didn't have that background, thinking, well, they're doing it. This is how you do it. And they copy it. And then because they copy it, other people copy them. And it, it perpetuates across the media spheres until that becomes the norm. And suddenly trying to explain to people, but that's not what media criticism. And they go, but no, everyone does this. And you go, oh God, it's all gone horribly wrong. Why do the critics always get it wrong? You only say that when you disagree with a critic. No, I don't. What about that one? Oh, well, they got it right. Why? Because you agreed with them. <laughs> Do you fundamentally see an issue here that suddenly it's they got it wrong when they don't agree with you? Where we conflate good with what we enjoyed. And it, it goes round and round and people go, oh, but um, all art is subjective. Therefore, my opinion is just as valid as another. Go, Whoa, there's a giant chasm of logic there right in the middle. All perception of reality is subjective. What you enjoy about a work is subjective. Your selection of criteria can be subjective. But don't kid yourself. There are still standards. There are still elements that we can discuss. And we might vary on how well something does within a range. But we can still agree on a range. It's not that, oh, just because everything is subjective, anything goes. And like the dude says, that's just your opinion, man. There's still a basis in understanding your subject in understanding what you're talking about and it's not a free-for-all it's not if taylor you know a lot about tattoos and i clearly know nothing about tattoos if i started a whole conversation going well this is what you should look for in a tattoo artist and you're sitting there going you ap what are you talking about you don't that is terrible advice no no don't tell people that you would be going insane because you're going Mm -hmm. AP, you're so ignorant in this field. You do not know this field. In fact, you know so little about this field, you don't even know what you don't know. This, and if you said that to me, I go, well, I'm perfectly entitled to my opinion. And you go, but AP, you don't know 
what you're talking about. Now, mm -hmm. if I said that to someone who had a booktube channel and I said, listen, it's great that you're enthusiastic about books, but you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, AP's being a gatekeeper. Oh, so why would it be okay for Taylor to tell me when I'm talking about stuff I don't know about? But I've seen lots of tattoos. I watched a bunch of tattooing shows. I, I know about tattoos. I can talk about them now. And Taylor goes, no, AP, you don't. You honestly don't. And you don't know what you don't know. There's so much out there. But if I had said that to a booktuber about how they addressed books, how dare you uh, tell someone they're not allowed to talk about books? I go, no, I'm not saying they can't talk about it. I'm saying they should potentially get better informed before they make evaluative judgments about something or before they rule on whether or not you can have an objective review that maybe you actually need to understand the subject. Um, if you're going to say to someone, the plot is bad, then maybe you should understand what plot is. If you're going to talk about the structure of a novel, then maybe you should know that there's more than one narrative structure and that Freytag's Pyramid, although you heard about it in high school, is not the only way to structure a story. And even then, narrative structure is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. Maybe if you want to talk about these things, and I encourage people to engage with it, to learn about it, to talk about these things. But if you're going to talk about them, don't make declarative statements. Don't say this book has no plot because it clearly does. There are very few books out there that have no plot. Most of those are experimental fiction. Almost every single book that you have read, particularly in the fantasy genre, will have a plot. It mightn't be a plot that you enjoy. It mightn't have a lot of action scenes. But I well, I'm almost willing to guarantee it has a plot because it will have narrative events. You go, oh yeah, but it was just a bunch of people sitting and talking. And you go, congratulations, you've just described Pride and Prejudice. Are you saying that Pride and Prejudice has no plot because there isn't a fight sequence? It's, I love narrative and I love for people to get engaged in the discussion. I love books. But I want people to learn, to know more, to get engaged in that. I want people to join in the discussion. But what we have encouraged as a society is security in ignorance and defense of that ignorant position because it's, well, it's just my opinion. And I'm entitled to my opinion. And you go, yes, you're entitled to your opinion. And I would therefore also be entitled to my opinion that you're an idiot. But if I call you an idiot, why is that me being mean? And, uh, you know, overruling. You took Steve out with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was really bad just... timing to take a drink. <laughs> but, and this is the thing. We, we all learn every single day is an opportunity to learn more. I am not an expert. I specialized in this stuff and I have a certain level of knowledge, but I am not expert because I know how much more I have to learn. I, I am at the bottom of a mountain and I'm looking up going, there's a huge mountain there. What I'm always stunned by is the people who are so certain and they're standing there going, I'm on the top of the mountain and you look and you go, you're on a hill and you're in the foothills 
of this knowledge. But because of the cloud layer and the fact that you don't look up, you're looking down at where you have come from and you're going, ah, oh, look at where I am instead of looking where you could go. And that's the thing. We are all on a journey to learn more, to experience more. We will all make mistakes. It always happens. But think of the number of times people use the expression, um, show, don't tell. Because they've heard it. They've heard it in writing workshops. They've, they've heard authors talk about it. And how many people, when they use the expression show, don't tell, actually understand what show, don't tell means? Have actually, not just, not just the definition, oh, well, it's, it's about showing them something instead of telling them something. And how many of them go, but, but in this, it told us this thing about the character. And you go, right, you're confusing the technical term tell with the standard term tell. Yes, that told you something about the character, but it is not telling, it, it's doing it through showing. Because the same word has multiple meanings. Uh, newsflash to people, words can have multiple meanings and they can be similar or linked. But people use technical language, people use academic language and they use it in ways that's incorrect. And then when you point out that's incorrect, oh, well, uh, but this is, this is my meaning and language is usage. And you go, oh my God, you're quoting now from linguistics about language being usage and the evolution of language without under understanding language and the linguistic background for that. And it's the perpetuation then of, well, this is my definition. And you go, we don't just get to make up definitions for everything to suit ourselves. Language is based on communication. And there has to be an agreed definition in order for there to be effective communication. And there can be nuances. You can, you can redefine something if you're very specific about how you are defining it. But then you need to make that clear and explicit in what you're saying. Um, you can't just assume that people will know your idiosyncratic definition that you've thought up that is personal to yourself. How is anyone meant to know that? Um, I think um, some of some of this is ringing true to me in in the, in the way that online culture has changed what is acceptable and what is not. So, for example, in this case where maybe I use language that I'm not really I'm not really qualified, not qualified to use, but I use it in the wrong context or it's clear that I haven't you know, done my due diligence to learn about this language and I use this phrase. And then let's say you comment and say, actually, this is a, the, the, the correct context in which to use this. That is taken as personal, I think, online nowadays. I think it's just a general culture that we have that being corrected is a personal attack rather than a discussion about what you, about the, the subject is taken personally. And that is something that I've noticed an increase of in recent years, uh, especially through visual mediums, because people are expressing it and saying, this is me saying this. So when someone corrects you, it feels more personal, I think, than it would on a written forum or in ways we may have engaged with that kind of criticism in the past. And, and also there's the thing of, AP, did you just well actually me? Because that's even a meme now. Oh, they just well act. You know, people know what that is. Um, and, and the thing is, it's, 
I feel like it's it's not to discourage people from engaging with this stuff and learning mm-hmm. about this stuff. And I want people to use the term diegesis. I want people to use the term hypodiegetic. I want people to to think about plot and structure um, and story in the different ways that I talk about it. Um, yeah, uh, the people, people who, who read reviews, reviews have yeah, even never perhaps heard. never heard of Freytag's Pyramid. The reviewers might not really mean the book has no plot. They're saying their followers won't like it. In which case, if you mean the book has a plot, but I didn't like it, then don't say the book has no plot. Like, literally, using the same... I didn't enjoy the plot. The book has no plot. Why, why use the expression that is ambiguous and actually doesn't mean what you you want it to mean? Why? Just be clear. Say the thing that you actually mean. But when we when we talk about all of these things, we learn every day. You learn by engaging with others, by discussing these things. Not everyone uses the terms plot and story the way that I do. That is very particular to how I was taught and, and the, the field in which I was taught. And I recognize that when people talk about plot, they don't mean it in the technical sense that I do. So I would never say to someone, oh, but that's not how you use plot. But when someone says the book has no plot, you go, no, it clearly does. And you just sound like an idiot saying that. Oh, well, I meant that, you know, I didn't enjoy it or it was boring or not a lot happened. You go, then say that. Don't say it has no plot because clearly it does have plot. So you're just saying something that is wrong, deliberately wrong. And you know that it's wrong. And if someone challenged you on it, you would know that it is wrong. And that's the thing. It's not that someone uses the word diegetic incorrectly. No, that's a technical term and diegesis, mimesis. Quite often, those are very technical terms about very specific things and they come into play when you're trying to articulate a nuanced point. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when someone says something like, it had no plot. And clearly they don't know what plot means if they actually meant that. If they didn't mean that, then why are they saying it? If you don't understand what show, don't tell means, then don't use the expression. If someone gives me a quotation in French, teaches me how to pronounce it, but doesn't tell me what it means, I'm not going to use that expression until I am sure what that expression means. Not just the literal translation, but what it actually means. Because... We all know there are things that you can say in a language that sound perfectly innocuous, but everyone who speaks that language, well, you don't realize that you've just said that thing because there's a cultural connotation. to it. We don't use expressions when we don't understand their meaning, but apparently in reviewing, we do. Because, well, like it, it's just a word. I don't need to know about the subject I am reviewing. And... We, there's, there's a difference between, and I'm sorry that like, this has gone on so long, but it's, there's a difference between offering something up as a professional evaluation, as a professional review, and offering something up as an informal discussion. And book clubs, discussing amongst friends, talking about how you felt about a book, those are all things that are personal that are informal, that do not require the same level of rigorous language. Because it's discussion, 
it's friendly, it's informal. But that's very different to a formal review. So if you think of, if you talk about, this is how I felt about a book. Um, this is my reading experience. This is what I experienced when I was reading it. And I didn't enjoy that. And I find this to be, um, this, this was a little clunky and I didn't, I didn't quite get what was going on. Those are all things talking about how you experienced the book. But you have someone else go, uh, the book is clunky. And you're like, no, that's not talking about how you experienced the book. That's not an evaluation of the book. And to quote the internet, where are your receipts? If you're going to make a claim about the book being clunky, prove it. If you say, I've, um, I find it to be a bit clunky, you don't need to prove that. I can't ask you to prove that because that's about how you felt. But if you say the book is clunky, the writing is clunky, prove it. You've made a claim, prove it. The pacing is slow. And you go, okay, prove it. I find the, uh, when I was reading this book, I didn't enjoy it. It felt slow to me. I can't ask you to prove that because that's about how you felt. That's about how you experienced it. The pacing is bad in this book. Well, what do you mean by bad? Explain it. Oh, uh, the pacing. But the no. Think of the number of times you've heard someone say the pacing is bad. You, that, the thing is, that is meaningless. That is actually a nonsense statement. Because what do you mean by that? Was it too fast? Was it too slow? And they go, oh well, sometimes it was fast and sometimes it was slow. And you go, that's literally what pacing is. Do you mean it happened in the wrong places? W was it was it fast when it should be slow? Was it slow when it should be? Well, explain the piercing is bad is nonsense unless you explain um i didn't enjoy the piercing absolutely no one can gain say that because again it's about how you experience it i didn't like that character okay i didn't like that character because of x y and z absolutely fine that's a bad character okay now you're getting into an evaluation where where is your evidence how are you going to prove that that's a bad do you mean it's a bad character morally, that it is badly realized on the page. Do you mean that it is uh, poorly constructed? Do you mean that, you know, what do you mean by bad? And it's this constant use of um, generalized language, which reduces the nuance of what we're trying to say and trying to articulate. And it is important, at least to me, and uh, like I frame all of this as, these are the things that are important to me and, and my opinion on things and my preferences about them. And I don't get to dictate what the rest of the world does and what the rest of the world likes, but I can have an opinion and a preference for it the same way that everyone does. And to me, the more we can be nuanced and thoughtful about what we are doing, the more that we can hold in our head the difference between evaluating a text and evaluating our enjoyment of a text, that these are not the same things. That it is absolutely perfectly acceptable to say, this is a brilliant book. It has excellent writing. The characters are really well constructed. They're fluid. They're complex. They're psychologically, psychologically real. The, the plot flows neatly from one point to the next. There are no plot holes. You can talk about all these things and go, this is an absolutely wonderful, brilliant book. And I hated it. It just wasn't for me. Well, if it's so good, why did you hate it? You go, because it's not to my taste. It's not to my preference. But it was really well done. 
but but how can you hold in your head the fact that the book is good and you didn't like it? You go, because I'm not a five-year-old. I can understand the difference between a personal preference and, and my enjoyment and the quality of something. I mightn't like the color of some curtains, but I can see that they are beautifully made and the fabric is wonderful and the color is vibrant. You, you can comment on those things and go, do you like them? Not particularly, no, because I don't like that color. But everything else about it is amazing. They're really well made. They're, they're perfect. And if you like that color, it's going to be perfect for you. But some people seem to have this real difficulty in understanding that just because you like something doesn't make it good. There are plenty of books, and we refer to them, guilty pleasures. Yes, books that we know maybe are not the greatest books in the world, but are, are really important to us. They... They either entertain us, we have a nostalgia factor for them, but they are things that we love, even instead of or despite or because of their flaws. We have a term, guilty pleasures. We understand that. And yet the number of times when people say, oh, um, like, it, like we mentioned with Brandon Sanderson, AP hates Brandon Sanderson. You're like, I don't hate Brandon Sanderson. For a start, I've never met him. If you're talking about his work, I don't hate his work either. Because A, the first trilogy of Mistborn I quite enjoyed. And B, I enjoy a lot of the Cosmere. I just, I'm not a fan of his style. Why, why is that so difficult? Oh, well, you don't like him. And you're like, I don't know him. Stop saying I don't like Brandon Sanderson. I've never met the man. I'm sure he's perfectly nice. Um, oh, well, you just hate his books because it's popular to hate his books. You know, I, I think Kickstarter and the internet would di disagree about getting Brandon <laughs> Sanderson popular. I think the popular thing is liking Brandon Sanderson. Certainly his sales figures uh, seem to suggest that. Oh, but you just dislike him because he is popular. You're like, <sighs> I've explained the aspect of his writing that I do not enjoy and why I don't enjoy it. But I've also said on multiple occasions, aspects of his writing that I think are very good, that he does really well. And yet people still want this simplistic, if you like something good, if you don't like something bad, as if we are five years old and refusing to eat our vegetables. It, I thought the whole point of the internet about having this ability to communicate to people was to raise the level of our discourse, not to degenerate into kindergarten and to go for the lowest common denominator every time. We, we have access now to all of these incredibly smart, well-educated experts in their field. We can access educational videos about these subjects. And you go, you know what? If I'm gonna start a channel on tattoos, I might go and study some of the stuff about it first. I'm really enthusiastic. I want to do this. I want to do a channel about tattoos. I've seen all of this stuff. I've watched these things. I'm going to go and learn about it, then do my channel. Well, part of that may be AP that, you know, we all need to reach into our capacity for emotional intelligence and objectivity and all the better parts of our nature, especially if we're reviewing something, because to a certain extent, we're all reviewers here, all four of us, even if we don't formally write something and put it on paper, or post on Goodreads or do a video about it. 
we're all reviewers in a way and um, whether you consider that formally or informally and maybe it's just yeah we need to step up our game and as i said reach into our capacity for emotional intelligence and being objective and thinking a bit more thought before we actually um you know put something in a video or put something uh to paper so but but it's thank you for um you know going on a massive run but but i do say this uh, one day hopefully we will have brandon sanchez on the show and we'll bring you back so that you can uh you know talk about the fact that you don't hate him <laughs> and, uh, and i guess i can too because you know of despite issues that i may have with certain aspects of his well, writing the- there, there are two comments that just come up in the, in the chat that I wanted to address. One is YouTube is mostly about entertainment, not about increasing the quality of the discussion. You know, why does YouTube have an entire category for education then? There's an entire categorization of YouTube videos, education. That YouTube is not in a vacuum. It is part of a social media landscape. Along with Twitter, along with all of these other things, YouTube comments, that's, that's about interaction. And yeah, huge chunks of YouTube are about entertainment. But you know when people are doing reviews and critiques and discussions of, of books, it's not solely about entertainment. It all, again, context is very, very important. And there are loads of educational videos on YouTube. Absolutely millions of them. So dismiss, saying that it's mostly about entertainment, no, I disagree. Um, a lot of it is but there's a very important aspect of it, uh, particularly in and around books, that is about various levels of education and engaging in discussion and becoming better readers, becoming better critics, becoming more discerning readers, finding new things that we might enjoy reading. That That is important. Uh, and the other thing was uh, Jimmy from the Fantasy Network said, I think making a channel and growing as you go is perfectly fine. If I waited until I was good enough, I wouldn't be here because I'm still not great. I said, I completely agree that, like I said, we are all still on a journey. We are all learning every single day. We're all constantly trying to improve. But Jimmy, you wanted, you started and you wanted to talk about books. And then as you've gone, you have tried to develop. You haven't stuck to your guns and gone, no, well, that's just my opinion. And you've actively tried to learn. And a lot of what he does, and it's a brilliant channel. I really enjoy Jimmy's channel. He talks to authors. He talks to other readers. He talks to other reviewers. He engages and learns and um, elevates what he does. And it's fantastic. And I I love his channel. It's not about being perfect. None of us will ever be perfect. We're all fallible human beings for a start. And there is always going to be more to learn, but at least having control of the basics. And then from there, realizing that just because you know the basic, you still have more to learn. And it is about that constant evolution. But walking into something and not knowing the difference between a personal preference and an evaluation of a text, I think it's kind of fundamental to the process of reviewing. That if you cannot discern the difference between those two things, you need to understand that difference in order to review. But if you want to talk about how you feel about books, if you want to talk about your reading experience and what the book inspired in you, 
then you don't need to know that difference because you're not evaluating the book. And that is absolutely fine. There is room for all types of discussion. But if you're going to review, then understanding the fundamentals of what a review is, is kind of useful. And understanding the distinction between a personal preference and an evaluation is fundamental to that. And everyone uh, that you talk to and you go, that food, do you like broccoli? Yes or no? No. Is broccoli bad? Well, it's not necessarily bad. I just don't like it. Right. That book. Oh, I hated that book. It's terrible. It's a bad book. Okay. So how can you understand personal preference when it comes to food and you can't understand personal preference when it comes to consuming media? Are you media illiterate? Oh, well, uh, that's just, you know, it, it, uh, art's just subjective. You're so taste. But you understand the distinction with food because you were taught that as a child. No, it's not bad. You just don't like it. There is a difference. We were taught that as children. But apparently that mindset has infected how we approach film, how we approach television, how we approach books. We are now the ultimate consumer. And if this media does not cater to our every personal individual whim, oh, that's bad with no recognition of the fact that the media is being consumed by millions of people and it is therefore impossible to cater to every single individual taste. We universalize our experience all the time. Think of the number of people who go, oh, the fans of something. And what they do is they project their uh, particular perspective. Say that is the view of the fans. Um, they can even quote some fans who agree with them. And you look, Here's, here's my receipts. The fans all agree. And you go, no, no fandom is that unified. None of them. There are lots of different types of fans. And within fandoms, there are lots of different types of fans and different groups of fans and different ways of expressing that love and admiration for various things. And we all approach it in different ways and we all understand it. In different ways. But we now universalize the individual because it makes our... Um, our perspective more important because if our perspective is representative of everyone else's yeah we're leading the pack and again it takes us back how many times have you heard someone complain why are the critics always wrong and you go what do you mean that critic liked that thing and that thing's terrible why is it terrible oh well I didn't like it What about when the critic, the same critic said that that thing was good? Oh, no, they were right then. Why? Because I like that. And it just goes round and round. <laughs> I think a key point for reviews is, as a reviewer, no matter what media you're reviewing, is making your taste clear on your channel or in the way that you review something. So we've talked many, many, many times on here about... Um, about how negative reviews can serve a purpose, right? So people have said during uh, the spiffball competition that we have, you know, if you get a negative review, people, even if they got kicked out of the competition, they found their readership through the review. So I think making your taste clear can help other people see what might work for them. In reviews as well. I think that's pretty important and something we don't discuss all the time is that a reviewer 
needs to make their perspective or what they're coming from clear. Yeah, yeah. And, like I absolutely agree. And this is the, the point I was trying to make about specificity of language. You don't say the piercing is bad because that's that's meaningless. But if you tell me why, what you didn't like about the piercing, how you perceived it in a negative sense, then you might say this this book was breathless. It was a constant moving from one action sequence to the next action sequence to the next action sequence. And it just, it was flying through uh, hell bent for leather. And you go, right, actually, I'm really in the mood for something like that. So even though you didn't enjoy it, even though you didn't like that style of piercing, because you described what the piercing was, I might go, oh, but that's what I'm in the mood for. You go, oh, um, I really, I didn't like this. It was, it was far too emotional and sappy and it was, they were, um, instead of focusing on a lot of the big action set pieces, because those things I really enjoyed, but there was so much focus on the aftermath and how it affected people's lives. And you go, oh, I am really in the mood for that. That is exactly my job. So in a way, you are being critical. You are being negative um, and describing why you didn't enjoy a book. No one has a problem with that. But because you describe why you didn't like it then becomes accessible to someone who is not you. But if you go, oh, this book was rubbish and it was bad and the characters were bad and they were just two dimensional. And they run through a litany of, it's almost like there are set phrases. This just feels like fanfic. Dear God, the number of people who talk about professionally written TV shows being fanfic. I, I would like to use an expletive to describe that asinine comment. But, um, people trot out set expressions because they go, oh, well, this is what this is how everyone refers to it. You go, but that expression is meaningless. It, it really, you're trying to, when people use the expression fan fiction for TV shows, they're, they're trying to say, oh, it's like amateur writing. And you go, if that's what you want to say, then say it. Don't hide behind a fig leaf of, well, I'm just calling it fan fiction. If you want to call those professional writers amateurs, then do it. Put your money where your mouth is. And don't pretend, oh, well, no, what I meant by fan was they, they are fans and then they're just writing in that world. You go, no, that's not what you meant. You, and it's people, people using language that way, that annoys me. But negative reviews don't have to be uh, mean. They don't have to be mean-spirited. But there's an element of schadenfreude that we get from watching a mean-spirited review. There's an element of salacious deliciousness to watching someone be really mean and horrible about something that we don't like that we enjoy that because deep down inside human beings are terrible and that's an aspect of us um game of thrones season eight is fan fiction game of thrones season eight that was written according to the outline that martin gave them and told them to run with and he outlined for them because he hadn't finished the books yet Everyone blames the showrunners and the writers for that. Everyone. Season eight was terrible. It was all their fault and they ruined it. And if George R. R. Martin had written it, it would have been brilliant. George R. R. Martin has had years to write this and hasn't. George R. R. Martin brought them to his house numerous times. They went over. He explained what was going to happen in the show and how they had to do it and how they had to wrap it up. And they tried to fit that in to the show format. Did it work? No, but let's let's not say that it's fan fiction when Martin directed them to do it. 
They were authorized by Martin to do it. They were licensed by Martin to do it. They had help from Martin to do it. Yeah. That's how TV writing works. TV writing is very rarely written by the author of the original work. And it, oh, little, little expressions like that just rub me the wrong way. I am sorry. No, don't, don't apologize, AP. And I know because we could talk forever. This is like, oh my God, this is so, we're just so, so engaged and engrossed in, in all the things you're saying. It's just, but I know we have to, we, we have to wrap up because we'll go on for the next three hours. But quickly, I want to just put in there, if you're still listening, uh, talking about uh, reviews and doing a way to do a positive review. Joanna Reads, if she's still watching, just want to give her kudos. Watch one of her uh, reviews about Babel by Arf Kwong, a book that didn't work for her, but she, I think she did an exceptional job of accentuating the pauses of the work and yet saying what didn't work for her and why it didn't work. And um, that, that's a great example of about what I think was was a review, a well-done review that for a book that that she didn't like. So I just want to pop that in there if she's listening. But I know I know we have to wrap things up. I apologize. I don't want to drag this out any longer too steep. So but uh, yeah, this this is just amazing. I've just been eating this up. And and like uh, one thing to sort of say about all of this. You know, this is me. I'm not working from notes. I don't have all of it. This has just been stuff popping into my head. I'm wanting to talk about it. And I'm not always right. I'm I am a fallible human being like everyone else. I have my own biases. I have my own blind spots. Um, I have the things that I'm obsessed with and are really important to me, but are not necessarily important to everyone else. I cannot and do not and will not dictate to everyone how they should behave. But like everyone else, I, I think that I am entitled to my opinion and the things that I would like to see. Does everyone have to do that? Of course not. Everyone is entitled to do it to the best of their ability, to the thing, to achieve the thing that they want. And, you know, it kind of cycles back a bit to what I was talking about in terms of being an editor. I don't dictate to editors or to, to authors what they have to put in their book. Just like I'm not saying, if you want to do, if anyone wants to write a review, if anyone wants to have a booktube channel, do it, get involved. But always remember that we learn every single day. We can improve every single day. It's not, oh, well, now I know what I'm doing. I don't need to have to do any more. It's, it's great to try new things. But be aware that, yeah, we can make mistakes and we fail. And the point is to try and improve, not double down on, well, no, I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, no, you don't. Um, to understand that there is a difference between personal preference and evaluating a text. And yes, there are elements of subjectivity to it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still elements that we can identify and, and actually discuss. It's not just about, well, this is how I felt. It goes beyond that. And so, yes, I have strong opinions about a bunch of this stuff. And I know that not everyone shares them. And that is fine. There's room for more than just my opinion. Um, but I hope it it gives a different perspective on something that even if you don't agree with me, how you don't agree with me helps you refine your own position. And it might make you go, actually, now that I've heard AP's point of view, no, I still don't agree with him because I feel that this is actually better this way. That's how we all grow. 
And that's how we all learn. It's not my way or the highway. That's not how any of this works. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me on again, despite the fact, yes, I go on massive tirades and rants. <laughs> uh, um, I, I rumble all over the place. And like, I, if you give me a list of specific key things that you want to discuss, then maybe I could make some notes ahead of time. But as it is, you're getting, this is what happens with the, the, the sort of squirrels in my brain that they just scamper around. And they latch on to something and then I go off on a thing and then one of them, oh, look over here. And my brain goes off in that direction. And so I'm sorry. Thank you very much. For you don't need to apologize. I would argue that's why people are here. We're, yeah. People are here to hear you talk, not us. Exactly. <laughs> you know, this is this is a platform for people to get to know you. So I'm, I'm cool with it. Yeah, yeah I always like that. Uh, before, we, uh, before we sign off, uh, PL, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, beside you and Taylor, for the most part, on, on page chewing, which has become this incredible part of my life and my, my writing journey that I wouldn't trade for the world. So thank you both for providing me with this opportunity. And thank you to guests like AP for making this so enriching. Uh, this this is, and I, I, I'm remiss, this is the 40th episode. So that's a, a landmark episode. It's, it's, it's great to have AP as, as part of it, especially. I can't believe we've done 40 already. Uh, Taylor and Steve, but uh, here's to, you know, certainly at least 40 more. So uh, Peel Stewart writes uh, at Peel Stewart writes on Twitter. That's where I normally lurk. That's my preferred social media platform. Also on Instagram and Facebook, but certainly far, uh, far more infrequently uh, for the books. Um, the Drown King Saga, saga www.peelstewart.com. Uh, two books out now, uh, Drown King and the Last of the Atlanteans and Lord and King. The third book is coming shortly in the next few months. So uh but yeah, a uh, quick shout out before we go blog. That's another way with a place you can find me where Steve Taylor and myself are all bloggers led by the incredible Beth Tabler. Shout out to Beth Tabler, uh, our fearless leader. Uh, so you can find my reviews there. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, again, I, AP is uh, reminding me to step my game when I do reviews. So, and as an assistant editor, which, which Taylor and I are for before we go blog. Yeah. We have to be really cognizant of, uh, of, of how we write things about books and, and the way we write them. So, that's a great reminder from from AP, but I'm very proud to be part of Before Equal Blog. Yep, that's where you can find me. And Taylor? So you can find me on my booktube channel, May Between the Pages, where I do reviews that may or may not work for you. <laughs> Uh, you can find me. No, no. I'm just digging at you. This is delightful. <laughs> this is delightful. Uh, so, yes, you could find me on my channel. I do all sorts of content from vlogs to reviews to page doing. Uh, so this uh, episode is on my wonderful co-host Steve's channel, but sometimes it's on my channel as well. So you can find page doing over there. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, that's always linked in the descriptions of my videos. Mm -hmm. So you can find my handle there. And that's mostly book-based. But I would say those are the two main places uh, that you can find me. And I just want to say, again, thank you, AP, for coming on. <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and AP, where can people uh, contact you or get in touch with you? Um, well, my YouTube channel, uh, A Critical Dragon. Um, occasionally, I am on Twitter very occasionally. I try to log into it every once in a while. But um, yeah, the YouTube channel is usually the easiest place to find me. 
<laughs> Thanks so much again for for coming by and and I love the rambling. That's that's what you know. That's kind of the the goal is just to kind of see where the conversation takes us, and that's part of the fun. So, the fun squirrels running around. That's that's always it's always a good time. I also saw people jumping on the season eight topic in the comments, so that can be something oh, for yeah. a Friday conversation oh, at yeah. some point because people yeah, had right. things to say. Yeah, you're gonna have to pop back in another Friday conversation AP so we can uh... look at very quickly about this. Martin had a, obviously the books for the, the initial thing. They had initial meetings with Martin and Martin worked with the writers very closely for a lot of the art stuff. Then because Martin was concentrating on his thing, he gave them very specific points that they needed to work in for the end, but there wasn't an outline in the same way that there was the book. And he wasn't working with the writers anymore. That wasn't because the writers went, oh, well, we can do it better than him. It's that Martin had said, this is what I can give you. And he's working on that thing. They knew where it had to get to. And they, I think they had the same issue that Martin has had with the, the series, which is uh, it started out focused and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now he goes, this is the end point. This is where I need to get to. And I have to get all of this stuff into here. And so what the TV show ended up with the problem was they had two seasons to get from here into that end point in a certain space of time. You know, theoretically, Martin could do four or five, six more books and actually start working his way back to that. But that's the story has gotten so big that trying to get it into a, a point to a finite end, that structure hadn't been worked out yet. Martin could see what they did in the TV show. Um, they There was communication between them. He wasn't sitting in the writer's room. Anymore. They weren't sending scripts for his approval. He wasn't doing that. But there, there was communication. Martin could pick up the phone anytime and they would take his call. But um, trying to devote the rest of your life to a project, you go, showrunners, writers, actors, a lot of these people were going, right, we've been doing this for so long now, it has to wrap up. This might be phenomenal, but I need to move on with my life. Some of these people, you know, were... American or you know from that part of the world and having to spend a huge amount of time in the UK away from their family and you go oh well they could have just kept going and, and developing it and taking their time except well actors contracts were running there are practicalities that um, in filmmaking and television making that compromise artistic integrity or narrative integrity and you go that the practicalities of making a TV show there are issues of there are things that you can do in books that you cannot do on film and television very easily. There are things that you can do in film and television that you can't replicate very easily in books. There are things that work really well on the screen that don't necessarily work as well in books. But the practical realities of a TV show and the idea that, oh, you know, these showrunners are, are just writing fan fiction. They are professional writers. It is a professional writer's room. They were writing to this narrative and they were trying to do it in a way that would conclude the narrative within the parameters that they had. That was dictated by production company, by distributor, by all of these other different aspects. Their personal career goals, whether or not actors wanted to leave or were at the end of their contracts or whatever. There are loads of those things. Describing them as fan fiction is, we all know, a derogatory comment. It is a past remarkable comment that is meant to be mean-spirited about the writing. You go, you mightn't like the writing. You mightn't like how it turned out. 
but be honest about that and don't hide behind terms like that. That's that's the only point that I would make about the season seven and season eight debacle. It wasn't what fans wanted. It didn't end things neatly. They tried to do cram too much in and suddenly they were taking shortcuts that they didn't take before. And you go, there was a really detailed blueprint for a lot of the early stuff. There was no detailed blueprint for the later stuff. And Martin had nothing more to give them. There weren't more books that they could get the blueprint from. Um, there, there's only so much that, well, should you just put the show on hiatus until he finished the books? There you go. That would have solved everything. Yeah. You'd yeah. still be waiting now. Like Steve says, we'll have to have a, a GOT season eight conversation maybe. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, sorry, Steve, what about, you can't get out of this, so where do we find you? Oh. You, you, you uh, can't get left out, you, my friend. You can find me on pagechewing.com on the forum there. That's where we get into all of our all of our trouble. And I can I'm I'm also one of the few people who use Vero. I, I love Vero, so I can be found there at that one mf'er. That's my handle on Vero. <laughs> but come and say hi if you uh, if you use Vero. It's a great like great platform. Nice and nice and easy, and it's it uh, spurs my creative juices there. So it's it's a it's a nice warm welcoming place. So. Go check it out. If Vera again, wants AP. to sponsor page chewing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm here, so yeah. We'll put the logo in the background and everything. But yeah. Yeah. Get that. But uh thanks again, AP. Really appreciate your time and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Have a fantastic weekend and then a fantastic week next week. Yeah. Thanks again, everybody. Yeah. We'll see you soon. <laughs> All right. Bye.